in the 38 years since the United States has won four World Cup titles and four Olympic gold medals, making it one of the most successful national teams for the Americans. Those premier teams get a lot of love, but the 85ers, as they're known, have not. It wanted to be the world governing body of the sport, and yet it didn't want to recognize women's football. This has been a long, long journey, a story with many, many chapters. And it goes back long before this last year, long before 1999. And so I think the only place to start is by recognizing the very first U.S. Women's National Team in 1985. Welcome to a new series of Flame Bears, special edition U.S. Women's Soccer Originals celebrating the first U.S. women's national soccer team. I'm your host, Jamie, and I am beyond excited to be co-hosting this season with FIFA Player of the Century, Michelle Akers. Hey, team! In this series, we'll hear from the infamous 85ers. They blazed a trail at a time when women's soccer wasn't an Olympic sport, and the Women's World Cup didn't even exist. We get to celebrate these badass originals who I am so proud to call myself a teammate of. These icons you don't know yet, but we're changing that. They're players who came from all over the country, some on scholarships, others playing different college sports because women's soccer didn't even exist at the time. Setting the foundation for what is now the biggest event in women's soccer this summer. Their stories have never been told until now. Now let's kick it off to today's episode. Emily Pickering was a member of the founding U.S. Women's National Team. She's an 85er. She assisted the first goal for the national team, along with my amazing co-host, Michelle, and was inducted into the Long Island Soccer Player Hall of Fame in 2015. Here she is. Emily Pickering Harner. Uh, I played on the 1985, 86, 87, and 92 U.S. Women's National Teams, and I was on the 83-84 paper teams. How did you get into soccer in the first place? I grew up in an era where there were tons of kids, and certainly I was seven of eight. So there was always somebody to play with, and we would just go out and play. I started in Massapequa on Long Island. Gordon Bradley was coach of the Cosmos and Diplomats and he came over with his wife and two boys, uh, Vera and Douglas and Paul Bradley, and started, we played um, stickball in the street. He taught us soccer. He started the Massapequa Soccer Club uh, for the boys. Vera started it with Lisa Gosley for the girls and um, we didn't really have anybody to play. It was just happening. And so, you know, what was it, 1972 or 32, I guess? You know, and Title IX was just passed. So, you know, things were starting to happen, and I think East Meadow was the one team that we played, and it just grew exponentially from there and continued to grow. And then travel teams by the time I think I was 13, we didn't have national championships until I was a senior in high school and I didn't have a club, a high school team. We had club, I'd been playing club ball for nine years, so we didn't have a high school team until my senior year. There were three of us, Laura Beyer and uh, 
Chris Hammer, we tried out for the boys team, but they decided that they needed to put an obstacle in our way. So we couldn't just go play. Don't know if we would have made it or not. They were very good boys teams uh, at the time, but they made us do push-ups, sit-ups, sprint, and all that, and we, we just weren't really prepared for it. So we didn't pass the fitness test, and it was the next year, so that was my junior year, it was my senior year, that they finally put the girls in. They had a girls uh, soccer team. Set the scene for us, Emily. Tell us about the 85ers. Michelle, please feel free to also chime in. You were there. We all met in Louisiana um, for the National Sports Festival. That was the first time they'd ever done that. And quite frankly, that was due to people who believed in, you know, the women's game and the fact that we can be playing at the international level. And we weren't an Olympic sport. So that was a big thing to be in the, in the sports festival. So, um, you know, it was, it was Olympic-like. It was pretty awesome. You know, it was incredible athletes all surrounding us and great games and fans. We had fans. You know, I was used to college. We had Anson's dad and his brother at our games and maybe his mother's once in a while. So, you know, lots has changed. <laughs> For those who aren't diehard soccer fans, you may be asking who Anson is. Anson Dorrance is the legendary UNC soccer coach who helped Emily get to the big sports festival, which ultimately led to her playing on the first national team. Here he is. My name is uh, Anson Dorrance. I'm the soccer coach at North Carolina. And the reason I know Emily is because I coached her collegiately. The way we picked the national teams back in the day is we'd all gather at a sports festival because the sports festival was Olympic money. It wasn't like U.S. soccer money. And uh, the Olympic festival was this training ground for American Olympians where we would create an atmosphere on, usually it was a collegiate campus. And on that collegiate campus, they would have this sort of Olympic-like environment where each of the four regions in the United States and The regions were divided up, obviously, geographically. I was picked as the coach for the South, and we all gathered together. There in Baton Rouge, and uh, you would have a chance to uh, train for a week with your team, which is like unheard of back in the day, because none of us had any opportunity to bring kids to one site and train. So all of a sudden, you're taking the top 72 players in America, and you're gathering, in this case, at Baton Rouge, and uh, you're training in preparation for uh, a collection of games against the other regions. But while all this was going on, what was really cool is Mike Ryan came to see all the top 72 players in America from which he would pick an 18-player roster, I assume to go to the Mundialito in Italy, the mini World Cup. For those unfamiliar, Mike Ryan was the first national team coach. Mike was considering not taking us because he considered us mavericks because we tucked in our shirt sleeves and we, we wore our socks down. And you know, you got the full body tan. You might not know this, but I, uh, so I played for Mike Ryan as a, I was a ringer, like they brought in, I think it was, I can't remember which team it was, but it was in the national championships in St. Louis. And they brought me in to play. And Mike told me he was gonna bench me if I played with my left foot. He did not want me to play with both feet 
I was a midfielder. He wanted me to play right-footed only, and if I played with my left, he'd bench me. So he benched me. And my stepmom, Sue Akers, who played for him in Seattle on a women's team, she was like, you got to play your own game, Michelle. Play your own game. He's going to put you in because he'll need you. So that that was in part my experience with Mike Ryan. So the fact that he called us Mavericks was not a big surprise to me. (laughs) I know. Well, I've been called Maverick for a number of reasons, but that was funny. So that that's uh, that sports festival at Baton Rouge there, I, I think that was the first uh, Olympic sports festival that we, they actually had that had women's soccer in it because we there was multiple afterwards right, but that was that first one. There were a couple, but because we weren't an Olympic sport yet, they didn't invite us back after a while. So we had had regional camps and things like that. We would try, you would try out for your state team and then you would go play for whatever region you were in. Normally I had been playing with Virginia teams, you know, in the national championships. So I would go and play for the Virginia state team and play for the East region. So 85 was interesting in, in that, you know, I had just finished with, uh, at UNC and, um, you know, played for the South Regional team yeah. for Anson. And you came out of Massapequa, which is a, a badass area for women's soccer. Yeah, well, it certainly was back then because we were one of the first um, teams to be formed. And, you know, Gordon Bradley was the coach of the uh, Diplomats and lived two doors down with his two sons. And Kevin McCarthy lived across the street and he coached at Columbia, the girls, the women for 20 plus years. So all four of us went to college on soccer scholarships. So it's kind of funny, you know, we learned how to play uh, cricket and, you know, soccer from from the Bradleys. Um, And in fact, I coached Pele soccer camp and I was 13 years old telling 15, 16 year old girls to go to bed. Someone else who isn't surprised by this is her sister. Amy Cassell. Emily is my younger sister by a year and a few months. I felt that she had, when we were younger, a quiet strength, if you will, and a natural leadership. And you could see that as she grew older, that she was listened to, admired, and well-liked. What I remember is this young woman heading off to college, unknown territory for all of us, correct? She had gotten a motorcycle license and purchased a motorcycle and loaded up some things on it in the back, which was a um, Smurf stuffed animal. and drove from New York to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for school. So I see her as a young woman becoming a woman who was focused and determined to be what she's meant to be. It was like this was her meaning and purpose, if you will, and a dream. And it's not just that she played. She played, not only she mastered, you know, the sport, it was with a spirited, passionate excellence. 
So Emily, as one of the original Tar Heels to blaze this path, is it hard to fathom that you created a massive throughway to the national team? I don't think any of us really think about it in those terms because we just wanted to play. And you know, I was a tomboy. I was a, a boy in a girl's body. I played everything, mostly team sports. I wasn't really very good at like individual sports, but you know, we just wanted to play and, and I was pretty darn focused. How do you think soccer has changed since then? Money, more competition. You know, there's more girls playing, so there's more opportunities. You know, we were Title IX babies. We benefited from Title IX and, you know, can thank, you know, all the people that fought for that. And I went to college on a soccer scholarship. Like, hello, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, in 81. So that's huge. I think in terms of play, the athleticism, the speed, you know, the speed at which they play. I find it interesting. Our men are finally playing like our women. You know, they play faster. Their, their touches are better. They go at it. They don't hold back. They go at it now. Um, you know, and I've always said our women started earlier than anybody else because of Title IX. Norway and Germany have always been at the top of the game because they had great, you know, same kind of system, really. I don't know what they had. They didn't have a Title IX, but they were allowed to allowed to play, I guess. Um, but it, I said, it's going to be 50 years, you know, before our men, you know, it's going to be ingrained and it's going to be there. And, you know, like, like our women, the viable leagues are helpful in this country. And we have a, a super great viable men's and women's league now. So, I mean, the fact that these girls, we didn't have a World Cup. We didn't have an Olympics. These girls are in four and five Olympics and World Cups, like you know, just the three years that Michelle is younger than me made a huge difference. I mean, half of us were, you know, trying to work, getting pregnant, had mortgages. Enter Steve, Emily's husband, who came into the picture and has been a massive part of her life since. My name is Steve Horner. I am actually Emily's husband. We uh, we met in the late mid to late 1990s at, at a gym. Um, where she was working out and I was working out. And um, we started dating after that, and we uh, ended up getting married in 2000, and uh, we've been together ever since. One of the things that I most enjoyed with Emily was when she was coaching our daughter, and I would go to the games, and we had a, a big group of friends that we all got to know from the neighborhood. And Emily was just such an outstanding coach and so good with the kids. And it was just so much fun to watch. And it, it made you feel good about, about what she was doing, about the team, about the kids. And that really sticks with me. How old is your son now? He's 21 and my daughter is uh, 19. So he's in college in Belmont and Nashville, and she's in uh, Santa Clara in California. Both like music, uh, but he's definitely on the music track. So Marshall Harner on Spotify, look him up. We'll put a link in the show notes. Emily also had incredibly supportive friends, including soccer legend, Lisa Gemitter. 
now Lisa Gumita Pataro, who was the first ever NCAA National Player of the Year. She also won the Herman Award in 1985 and was also a national team member. But we'll let her introduce herself. So here she is. Hi, my name is Lisa Gumita Pataro. I was the 1985 NCAA National Player of the Year, and I played on the U.S. national team from 1986 to 1989. My first memories of Emily were at the National Training Camp in Blaine, Minnesota, 1985. It was there that we developed our friendship, two East Coast girls, and we bonded, and uh, to this day we are still incredible friends. As a player and a teammate, Emily was our field general. She set the bar so high for all of us. She was our playmaker. She created opportunities. Um, She was our leader on the field. And when times were tough, it was Emily who we relied on. So again, uh, her intensity and um, her heart was unsurpassed by any player that I ever played with. Coach Dorrance, you've coached literally generations of the best soccer players in the world. Tell us about Emily as a player. Well, she was sort of this really hard kid on the exterior that had this sort of heart of gold. And she had a sort of a rough upbringing, but way down deep you could see a spark in her that sort of belied her uh, very rough exterior. And so her evolution uh, as an athlete was to embrace uh, basically her teammates, which obviously uh, when you're sort of uh, brought up in a very rough background, uh, you're not used to this kind of unconditional love. And so uh, as a result, you've got this sort of hard exterior. And I knew inside this was this fantastic uh, human being. But basically, uh, uh, she had to figure out a way to lead through that part of her self as opposed to, you know, the uh, sort of gritty, hard knocks part of herself. When we asked why the world should hear Emily's story, this was her sister's response. I feel that the 85ers, unbeknownst perhaps to them at the time, were setting, let's just call it a foundation and a tone for the development of women's sports, that they need to be acknowledged. They're not second rate, they're not second class. They contribute wholeheartedly. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to devote all that time and energy to a sport. And these women played with heart, with the invincible spirit you know, and that was witnessed by many of us that saw them play or do see them play. And so I feel that she is somebody that contributed so profoundly so that the women who are playing now, you know, we're talking almost 40 years later, right? have some of the recognition and the many other things like trying to get equal pay. She's a part of that unfolding now. She's a big pivotal piece for that. 
And so these, my sister and these women are due hats off acknowledgement because it was them that had the courage, the stamina, the determination to do what they did. And these were women that often had to wear borrowed cleats, men's uniforms, you name it. And they still played. Here's what Emily's daughter had to say when we asked her the same question. I'm Avery Horner. I don't know. She's just kind of a trailblazer. Opened up a lot of doors for a lot of the players now. I think a lot of the women on that team really did. Um, And they didn't get the same opportunities. So just kind of leading that way is really important. I think that's a big aspect of why women's soccer is so looked at now is because these women really like started something um, and people wanted to see them play and like now we have a really amazing women's team and we've seen like multiple world cup championships it's really incredible they just kind of created that path for everyone emily before we wrap up what is something you'd like to tell the u.s national team right now well, look what they have done, what the hopes of, of women's soccer. I mean, they have built on what we built at the beginning and have fought for equality and equal pay along the way. I was there for the signing of the equal pay contract with U.S. Soccer. Yay, U.S. Soccer and Cindy Parlow. And obviously all those on, you know, Becky Sauerbrunn and Alex Morgan and Crystal Dunn the leaders, I think, of that team and, and of that movement, Megan Rapino, uh, you know, that they have paved the way for so many things. But think about how many years it took to be successful. If they weren't successful, that wouldn't have happened. And that's a shame, but it's there. And so winning begets winning. And as long as they win, they'll keep getting. Um, and all of what's happening now, I think, is the equality in pushing for equality in advertising. So not just across women's soccer, but all women's sports. And I do think there's more of an interest in watching women's sports. It's it's so you get to see the um, sport itself. It's not as fast paced. And I noticed this when I watched the mogul jumping. The guys were so fast. When the women went, you could really see the moves. So it's a different game. It's a, it's a game that you can really watch and see as being pretty and, and incredible. I mean, if you haven't watched the World Cup, I thought they must have sold to even guys who poo-pooed it for years that they're phenomenal now. These women are incredible, and they're not in one World Cup, one Olympic. They're in four and five, and we didn't even have one. I mean, God, that's just incredible. Thanks for tuning in to Flamebearers, and massive thank you to my amazing co-host, Michelle Akers. If you'd like to send in a letter or video of support or appreciation to Emily, please do so by reaching out to Marissa P at flamebearers.com. That's Marissa, M-A-R-I-S-S-A-P as in Potter, at flamebearers.com. We'll catch you on our next episode.